Okay, well, good evening everyone. It's lovely to see so many, so many of you here. I hope, uh, hope it's going to be worth your coming. <laughs> okay, so I'm giving a talk this evening which, as I've just said, is entitled The Radical Edge Returning to Buddhism in the 21st Century. And this is a talk which I gave, or a form of this talk which I gave a couple of months ago at the Manchester Convention. The Manchester Convention is a, a conference, if you like, of uh, Buddhists from different schools and traditions in and around Manchester. And even at that point, I, when, I, when I put this talk together, I put it together in mind that actually that would be a practice for, for giving a talk, this talk at the centre at a later date. Uh, and it's a theme, the theme I'm going to talk about is something that's been on my mind quite a lot and I think it's been on my mind because, I, you know, because I've taken on the role as being the chairman of this centre. It's a theme that uh, is, is dear to my heart really. But I've put it together in, really as a sort of paper rather, rather than a talk. Um, so if you sort of take it in that light, it's intentionally a little bit pokey and provocative. Um, so you may disagree with some of what I have to say, you may not like some of what I have to say, uh, and that's absolutely fine. Um, somebody asked me earlier on if they was going to give an opportunity for questions this evening, and I'm not, uh, because I, I'm not, I want to leave you with whatever it is you, you have, your stuff. But if you do feel strongly about anything I say, then please, you know, by all means, you know, later on in the week or next week, whenever. Actually, I'm not here this week, I'm going away. <laughs> but, uh, but at some point in the future, you might want to come back to me and tell me what you think, uh, whether you like it or don't like it or disagree with it. Okay, so actually, yeah, before I start, I want, just want to, and I'm not, part of this, this talk's not about not being, not being a consumer, okay, in a way. But I do want to recommend a few books, nevertheless. <laughs> so these are the books which have sort of informed my thinking, okay. Uh, some of you will know this one, uh, Money, Sex, War, Karma by David Loy. Uh, I mean, he's, he's written this in a fairly journalistic sort of style, but I thoroughly recommend it. I think it's, it's a book which is so appropriate to the times that we live in. So I thoroughly recommend that. Uh, this is another book which I also strongly recommend. It's called Hooked. And what is it? Uh, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire and the Urge to Consume. Uh, I, I've got a lot out of this book. I think it's very interesting. Some very uh, interesting perspectives. Uh, I love this book and probably recommend it. Timeless Simplicity by John Lane. Um, great book if you want to live a more simple life. Uh, and this one, which is uh, really quite pragmatic, it's called Your Money or Your Life. And it's about how to deal with your, fi how to work with your finances in order to simplify your life or to live the sort of life that you really want to live. Um, so uh, there's another book actually by Alvin Hall, which is. Um, about maximising your pension, it's got the same title and that sort of thing. That's not the book I'm talking about here. <laughs> okay, uh, so I recommend this one. Anyway, so you can ask me about those uh, at some point if you, if you want to know what they are. Or you can listen to the recording. <laughs> okay, so what am I going to talk about this evening? There's, there's sort of six parts to, to the talk. First of all, I'm going to sort of give a brief history of Buddhism in the West. Then talk about the, the Western context in which Buddhism, I feel, is taking root. Then give it my perspective, you like a Buddhist perspective on consumerism. Uh, then how consumerism is shaping the Western approach to Buddhism. Uh, some ideas about how to return Buddhism to its radical edge. And finally, I'm going to finish with a prayer uh, that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, some of you may have heard already. Uh, but it's about renunciation. 
So I'll start with uh, a potted history of Buddhism in the West. Well, we tend to think of Buddhism as having, well, it has been, it's been around for a couple of thousand years, hasn't it? But probably hasn't, well, it hasn't been known as Buddhism until relatively recently. And we only really heard about it in the West uh, a couple of centuries ago when, you know, when uh, civil servants and uh, Christian missionaries were going out into different parts of the empire, bringing back relics, religious relics. And as a consequence of that, schools, schools of Oriental Studies developed in Britain and Europe. And out of that, some study, you know, looking specifically at Buddhism. And up until the 60s, it was a fairly, by and large, it was a fairly intellectual pursuit in the West. Uh, but then in the 60s, it did begin to uh, gain a bit of a foothold in the popular consciousness. And it began to start developing as a living religion in the West. I suppose, the, you know, the 60s were marked uh, in, in this country, in Northern Europe and, and the States. Um, you know, an increasing material affluence, feminism, the sexual revolution, the counterculture rebellion, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the writings of the beatniks, the beatniks, a lot of the beatniks were interested uh, and identified with Buddhism. And it was in the 60s that a swathe of talented Buddhist teachers started coming to the West from the East. So you had uh, Suzuki going to the States, uh, to San Francisco, Chogyam Trungpa with the uh, Tibetan diaspora, initially came to Britain. And then you had some, you know, some Western people who had been spending time in the East coming back to the West. So you had people who had been involved in the Korean War coming back to the States, going back to the States and, and to the UK. And then we had Sangharakshita, of course, our own teacher, who had spent many years in India after the war returning to the UK. And sort of, if you like, sort of um, plugging into the, the counterculture zeitgeist of the late 60s and, and the early 70s. Then in the last decade or so, there seems to have been a, a further wave of renewed interest in, in Buddhism. And that's mainly, I think, as a consequence of the, the media attention given to the Dalai Lama, and more recently uh, to the boom, what I would describe as the boom in secular mindfulness, of which I'll say a little more later on. <coughs> so that's, if you like, a potted history, a very, very potted history. Uh, so what's the context in which, uh, in which Buddhism has entered? What is the Western context? Well, I can just go back and just draw a comparison, um, in a way, with where it's taken root elsewhere. When it left, when Buddhism left, when the Dharma left its indigenous India, moved to China, it entered a, co a context which was dominated by Taoism and, to some extent, Confucianism. And as a consequence of that, it sort of took on or adapted to the milieu of, of that environment. And out of that flowered Chan, or what later became Zen, and in a, in a different or sort of similar but different sort of way, as, as Buddhism went north from India, you know, it entered the Himalayan regions and encountered the Bon. It's, it's calling it a religion maybe too much, but the Bon sort of outlook. Um, and as a consequence of that, we, we've, we now have, or what happened is we, um, what happened was we, you had a flowering of what became known as Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. So, now, you know, in the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, Buddhism has begun to take root in the West. And we must ask ourselves, what's the nature and quality of the soil in which it's trying to take root? And consequently, what's the emerging form that Buddhism is taking here? I think it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to be clear-headed and objective about one's own culture because we're so deeply conditioned and immersed within it. 
Our cultural conditioning is the filter through which we see everything and through which we compare ourselves with everybody else of, of a different culture. We tend to take our culture as the baseline of, of what is normal. However, despite the difficulties of looking in on your own culture, I think, I think we can identify some defining characteristics. The ones that I've come up with, uh, I've come up with about eight, and of course there are many more. Some of the defining characteristics that I think of Western culture are, first of all, philosophical materialism, excuse me, scientific rationalism, feminism and egalitarianism, a psychologized environment, individualism, communications technology resulting in mass media and social media that we're so familiar with, a growing emphasis on environmentalism and whole earth philosophies, and finally consumerism. So as I say, these eight factors are in no way exhaustive, they're just ones that I've conjured up in my own mind, I, I think are important. And they're certainly not discreet. I think many of those factors, if not all of them, interact and condition other, other, others of those, of those factors. And I think each of them is worthy of a talk in its own right. But this, this evening I'm focusing on the one factor that I think is most dangerously impacting upon and potentially hindering the development of Buddhism in the West. And that factor, I believe, is consumerism. <clears throat> However, before I go on to critique, and I'm going to give a little bit of a critique of consumerism, I do want to acknowledge uh, that you know, over the last hundred or so years, our economic system, which is, fun which is fundamentally driven by consumerism, has significantly raised the living standards of hundreds, if not thousands, of millions of people. Um, you know, from a, from a historical perspective, we in the West, and I'm using the, the term West loosely because of course it applies to parts of the East and parts of the South of the, the world as well, uh, but we've never had it, we've never had so much. And it's hardly surprising that, you know, our consum the consumerist culture that we live in is generally welcomed by the majority of people who have the good fortune of enjoying it and envied by those who do not. But, you know, tonight I'm not going to be talking about consumerism from an economic or a sociological or, or really even a psychological perspective. I'm talking from a Buddhist, as a Buddhist, from a Buddhist perspective. And what I'm particularly interested in are three things. And that is, first of all, the impact of consumerism on our minds. Secondly, how it influences our attitude towards the Dharma. And finally, its potential effect on the emerging shape and form that Buddhism is taking place here in the West, and of course the rest of the industrialized world. At a 1997 international meeting of Buddhists in Japan, known as the Buddhist Think Sangha, consumerism was defined as the dominant culture of a modernizing invasive industrialism, which stimulates yet can never satisfy the urge for a strong sense of self to overlay the angst and sense of lack in the human condition. As a result, goods, services and experiences are consumed beyond any reasonable need. This undermines the ecosystem, the quality of life and partic particularly traditional cultures and communities and the possibility of spiritual liberation. Consuming, sorry, consuming is not in and of itself problematic. 
but consuming more than we need definitely is, at least from a Buddhist perspective. But what do we mean by need? Where do we draw the line between a need and a want? I challenge all of us to reflect upon this question because I don't think there's an easy answer. A fact that makes consumerism in the West today different from consumerism in previous times is that we now live and work within a global economy fueled by, fueled by consumer spending. This economic model, especially as it's developed over the last century, requires us as individuals and as a society to consume more, much more, than we need to survive. In fact, it requires us to consume more, much more, than we even need to thrive. I recently read, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but take it as, well, at face value. I recently read that within 40 years, Americans alone have consumed more natural resources than the whole of mankind over the previous 4,000 years. Our species is known as Homo sapien, the Latin for wise man or wise being. Given the profligacy of recent, recent profligacy of the consumerism in the West, and the impact it's having on our minds, our relationships, society, and the environment, it's probably time we questioned whether we are worthy of such a title. In order to distinguish the Buddhist and the contemporary Western attitude towards consumerism, I'm going to give two brief readings. One from the Kulavaga in the Pali Canon, probably written, I don't know, around 2,000 years ago, and the other from the Daily Telegraph, written just over a month ago. So first of all, from the Pali Canon. Then the Raja's concubines approached the venerable Ananda, saluted him, and then sat down at one side. Sitting thus at one side, the venerable Ananda instructed, inspired, <coughs> roused and gladdened with a talk on the Dharma. Then the Raja's concubines, having been instructed, inspired, roused and gladdened with the Dharma, gave Venerable Ananda 500 sets of outer robes. Then the Raja's concubines, having rejoiced and approved of Venerable Ananda's words, rose from their seat, saluted him, departed by keeping him to the right, and approached Raja Udina. Now Raja Udina saw his concubines returning from afar. Seeing the concubines, he said to them, What now? Have you seen the recluse Ananda? We have, Your Majesty, seen the recluse Ananda. So did you give anything to the recluse Ananda? Your Majesty, we gave Venerable Ananda 500 sets of outer robes. Raja Udina was annoyed, vexed and was outraged, saying, How can this recluse Ananda accept so many robes? Is the recluse Ananda becoming a clothes merchant or is he opening a store? Then Raja Udina went up to the Venerable Ananda and exchanged greetings with him. When the cordial exchanges were concluded, he sat down at one side. <coughs> Sitting thus at one side, Raja Udina said, said to Venerable Ananda, Master Ananda, did our concubines come here? Maharaja, your concubines did come here today. And what did they give to Master Ananda? Maharaja, they gave me 500 sets of outer robes. But what is Master Ananda going to do with so many robes? 
Maharaja, we distribute them to the monks with robes that are worn out. But Master Ananda, what do you do with the old worn out robes? We turn them into cover sheets. What then, Master Ananda, do you do with the old cover sheets? We turn them into floor sheets, Maharaja. What then, Master Ananda, do you do with the old floor sheets? We turn them into covers for pillows and mattresses. What then, Master Ananda, do you do with the old covers? We turn them into foot towels, Maharaja. <coughs> what then, Master Ananda, do you do with the old foot towels? <coughs> we turn them into dusters, Maharaja. <laughs> what then, Master Ananda, do you do with the old dusters? Maharaja, having shredded them up, we knead them into mud, into the mud, and then we spread them out on the flooring. Then Raja Udina thought, these recluses, sons of the Shakya, proceed very wisely. Nothing is wasted. So he gave Venerable Arnada another set of 500 pieces of cloth. And this was how a thousand sets of outer robes accrued upon Venerable Arnada. I suppose what this extract illustrates is an attitude of awareness and positive frugality, an applied awareness that ensures that everything is put to good use and nothing is wasted. The Buddha's middle way between indulgence and asceticism. So that's the Buddhist approach. Now turning to Western contemporary society, <clears throat> this is from The Telegraph, 20th of November, 2014. The Black Friday sales saw thousands of shoppers engaged in a frantic hunt for Christmas bargains, with up to 80% slash from big ticket items such as televisions and tablet computers. Police were called to stop fighting at dozens of stores and made a number of arrests after security guards found themselves unable to deal with the scrums. Black Friday was imported about three years ago from the US, where it has long been held on the day after Thanksgiving to lure people into the shops. This is the first year that British high street stores have offered vast numbers of heavily discounted items, as in previous years the sales have largely been confined to the internet. Police attacked supermarket bosses for failing to control shoppers. Senior officers said they had been forced to divert resources away from frontline crime fighting to deal with the chaos. The worst scenes were in Greater Manchester, where at least three people, excuse me, three people were arrested as, as fighting broke out between shoppers but police were called to keep the peace at dozens of stores throughout the country. Shortly after midnight, when some shops were open their doors, a 42-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of assault at a Tesco in Burnage, Greater Manchester. Another man was arrested on suspicion of a public order offence after police were called to reports of fighting in a 300-strong crowd at a Tesco in Hattersley. A third man was held at a Tesco in Salford after he threatened to smash in a shop worker. Sorry. A shop work space. It's not funny, but it's so extreme. In Stratford, fights broke out and a woman was injured by falling television. A member of staff at a branch of Tesco in Manchester was seen with a black eye after a disturbance broke out and one shopper said the store had resembled a war zone at midnight. I know I've used an extreme example, but I think we can agree that the Buddhist and secular Western attitudes towards consumerism are a little at odds with one another. The main motivation for consumerist behaviour in the greatest part of human history has been functional, for the greatest part of human history has been functional. People needed and still need to consume to survive. Until relatively recently, 
our dominant pattern of consumption has been related to the need for food, medicines, shelter and clothing. However, since the Industrial Revolution, which began in and around Manchester about 200 years ago, and especially since the Second World War, the motivations for consumption in the so-called developed economies of the West, and of course parts of the East and South too, have become much more psychological than functional. The advertising industry, employed by massive multinational corporations, seeks to convince us that through our patterns of consumption, we can do five things. We can feel more safe and secure in an uncertain and predictable world. We can gain membership of social groups to which we, to which we wish or feel we need to belong. We can achieve status in the eyes of others. We can improve our self-esteem and we can even self-actualize. Advertising basically encourages, to encourages us to believe that the fundamental, fundamental psychological needs, and for those who, who, who are aware, Maslow's hierarchy, can be met through consumption. In 2013, 14 billion pounds was spent in the UK on advertising to encourage consumer spending. That's a lot of advertising. So much, in fact, that it's almost impossible to ignore. I don't know about you, but I'm acutely aware of the ubiquity of advertising, vying for my attention seemingly at every turn. On the TV, the radio, the internet, cinema, and mobile phones. I find it extremely intrusive and I don't welcome it. An article in the weekly German newspaper, Die Zeit, described advertising as the dictator from which there is no escape, and I know the feeling. Some of you will know that my first job after, leaving, after leaving university was in an advertising agency. And later when I studied as a postgrad, as a psychologist, I wrote a thesis about the motivations and personalities of those, mainly men, actually all men in this case, who'd made their way to the top of that industry. For a short time I even considered working within the advertising industry as a psychologist. However, I'm pleased to say that I have come over from the dark side. <laughs> Advertising doesn't simply inform us of the birth facts of goods, services and experiences. Instead, it alludes to subtle and not so subtle symbols of a projected idealised self. By consuming the product, we are encouraged to believe that we will also consume its inferred symbolic qualities. Let's take the example of car advertising, which so often, or more often than not, is targeted at men with disposable incomes. When a car is advertised, it's rarely depicted factually and left at that. The car we see in the advert is not just a safe and efficient mode of transport. No, it's so much more. It's a symbol of virility and manhood. It's a, a testosterone-fueled sex machine that purrs like a panther and promises to elevate our sense of power, adventure and status. Essentially, the same principles, with minor variations, are used in almost all advertising. My understanding of advertising is that it seeks to achieve three key objectives. First of all, it seeks to attract and hold our attention. Secondly, it seeks to encourage a positive emotional identification with the product, service or experience being advertised. And finally, it seeks to stimulate a desire or even better, a craving for that product, service or experience. If that list of three objectives of advertising sounds familiar, it's because it forms the part of the, a particular part of the Nidana chain. Attracting and holding our attention is, um, is sense contact or sparsha. Encouraging a positive emotional identification with the product is feeling or vedana. 
and stimulating a desire or craving for that product is tanha. The gap that the Buddha encourages, encourages us to cultivate between Vedana and Tanha is the very same gap that advertising consciously and with the clout of 14 billion pounds behind it seeks to close. Advertising seeks to achieve the opposite, the antithesis of the Dharma. The Dharma seeks to help us escape the wheel of becoming, whereas advertising seeks to keep us on it. Consumer advertising is the anti-Dharma, it is Mara incarnate. The Buddhist author, David Loy, states that the market and consumerism has become a sort of religion, essentially an economic religion, that determines our dominant outlook and values in the West. Contrary to traditional religions which appeal to the need for connection with the transcendental as well as each other, our culture of consumerism encourages cravings for things that can never and will never succeed in filling our existential lack, sense of lack and emptiness. In the past, People often denied, defined themselves by what they produced. Today, more than ever, we are encouraged by consumerist advertising and the media to define ourselves by our patterns of consumption, by the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, where we go on holiday, the type of house we live in, and so on. By mindlessly defaulting to the dominant culture of consumerism, which may be difficult to resist given its ubiquity and our deep conditioning within it, we continually reinforce a sense of I, me and mine, which not only separates us from each other and the world, but also from reality, from nirvana. From a Buddhist perspective, this is clearly unskillful and ultimately painful. It is within this culture and milieu of consumerism, this un what I see as unfertile soil, so antithetical to the Dharma, that Buddhism is trying to take root in the West. Okay, so how is uh, consumerism shaping Buddhism in the West and what, what form is it taking as a consequence? Because of our thorough conditioning and immersion in a culture of consumerism, many of us, myself included, are laden with all sorts of unconscious attitudes that we unwittingly apply to Buddhism in much the same way as we do to everything else. The sorts of unconscious consumerist attitudes I'm referring to here include, but again this list isn't exhaustive, commodification, expectation of choice, desire for constant stimulation and instant gratification, cherry-picking what we like and ignoring everything else, and an attitude of entitlement and rights. So I'll start with commodification. It's my belief that consumerism is ubiquitous and successful because it flows so congruently with the currents of samsara. We continually receive messages from the media that we will be happy when our consumerist desires are met. However, as Buddhists, we know that ultimately our desires won't be and can't be satisfied in any lasting and meaningful way, because as long as we remain unenlightened, to desire is our raison d'etre. To experience freedom from desire and craving means to, create, means to cease to exist in the only way that we, so deeply conditioned as we are as consumers, understand. <coughs> On a relatively harmless individual level, 
Buddhism, Buddhism is being commodified as a form of exotica and fashion. Today it's not uncommon for people to buy and give inordinate attention, attention to a whole load of Buddhist paraphernalia, some of which we sell in our shop. <laughs> Malas, rupas, tankers, singing bowls, ethnic Buddhist clothing and so on. I suppose the risk here is that people mistake the trappings and the packaging for the substance. The same phenomenon of commodification can be seen in the way that the image of the Buddha has been appropriated by those who want to make a profit out of, out of a representation of calm and tranquility in a world of chaos and hurry. A world of chaos and hurry. Buddha statues are everywhere, especially and somewhat ironically given Buddhist ethics in shops, bars, restaurants and luxury spas and even nightclubs. Not only, are superficial, not only are the superficial symbols and images of Buddhism being commodified, but increasingly so, it, so are its methods and techniques. In the past several years, mindfulness has become commodified too. <coughs> mindfulness is, of course, an integral aspect of Buddhism. But at least in some quarters, and I hasten to say I'm not talking about breathworks, <laughs> in some quarters it is being divorced from the Dharma repackaged and transformed into an industry of professionals who, having paid several thousand pounds for their training, graduate with diplomas and degrees and are then considered qualified to set up shop themselves as mindfulness experts. It seems somewhat ironic that what has for two and a half thousand years been freely taught by Buddhists as a means of liberating being, beings from samsara is now, at least in some quarters, or at least by some, being taught as a profitable means of helping people adapt and adjust to samsara. As practicing Buddhists, we know that the purpose of mindfulness is to bring people into closer relationship with reality. It conduces to an increasingly ethical outlook and a natural letting go, a renunciation of samsara. It most certainly is not, as some secular mindfulness exponents state, a tool for increasing corporate profits, or as I read last night, a technique to mentally discipline and prepare US Marines for action. It seems to me that consumerism is like the Borg in Star Trek. It co-ops, appropriates and absorbs everything it encounters. I think we need to consider whether Buddhism in the West is falling into its clutches. So next choice. In our society we've become used to choice. I think, most, uh, I think most of us these days take consumer choice for granted. In fact, we tend to expect it. As far as Buddhism is concerned, there is indeed plenty of choice out there. Just look at all the different Buddhist schools and traditions represented here in Manchester. In one respect this is wonderful, because with informed choice, people are more likely to find a fit that works for them. However, the risk of so much choice is that it potentially undermines commitment to any choice made at all. People may initially be attracted to one Buddhist tradition, but then, at some point further down the line, when they hit a block or a wall, maybe they get disappointed or disillusioned with their teacher, all they need to do is click on the internet and find another. And there's one not far away. Rather than committing, persevering and working through, or learning from the challenge they've encountered, as would, as would almost certainly have been the, the case in more traditional contexts, here the temptation is simply, as I say, to find someone else who's a little bit more exciting and to transfer to him or her. Once we have taken refuge to the three jewels within a particular tradition, we are, effectively, 
disciples of that tradition. In the case of Triratna, it means, at least for order members, that we've agreed to follow the discipline of Buddhism as interpreted by our teacher Sangharakshita. And in order to make progress, discipline is absolutely necessary. So next, cherry picking. Cherry picking is closely related to choice. This is the tendency to select only those aspects of Buddhism and the Dharma that one likes and to effectively ignore or dismiss what one doesn't. So for example, I like meditating, but I never go to pujas. This is like shopping for an outfit and rather than buying everything from the same range of clothing so that it all matches, instead buying a shirt from one range, trousers from another, socks from another and so on. In terms of buying clothes, this is absolutely fine. However, when the same principle of cherry picking is applied to Buddhism and the Dharma, then the practitioner potentially ends up with a very confused and eclectic mishmash of methods and techniques from different schools, traditions and possibly even different religions. This results in a personalised and individualistic and highly subjective spirituality that feels right for the individual, but more often than not lacks the depth and coherence of an established tradition which values discipline and shared community with others who are on the same path. So next, constant stimulation and instant gratification. In our culture, when we want something, we tend to assume that we can get it straight away. Generally, we don't expect to have to defer our gratifications, regardless of whether it's a book from Amazon, news on the internet, a bus, a taxi, service in a restaurant or a hundred other things. I wonder if we are conditioned to bring the same impatient attitude to our meditation and the pursuit of enlightenment, which as I'm sure many of us are aware, won't and can't be rushed. It works its own magic in its own time, in its own way. An expectation of instant gratification may mean when the Dharma fails to deliver quickly, the people give up on it before the practice has had any chance of bearing fruit. And finally, an attitude of entitlement and rights. In our, in our culture of consumerism, we're told that the consumer is king or queen, and he or she has rights. In this country, this attitude of consumer sovereignty has been actively and consistently cultivated by successive government, government administrations since Margaret Thatcher. The problem with the notion of rights is that it creates and reinforces the fixed sense of self or the ego that separates us from each other. This is antithetical to the Dharma or Buddhism, which aims to do the opposite. Buddhism aims to transcend the divisions between self and other by raising awareness. With increased awareness comes an increased sense of ethical duty, obligation and responsibility, which results in dana or giving, loving kindness, compassion and ultimately altruism. So those are the sort of attitudes that I believe, growing up, living in, we are, we are conditioned, um, yeah, we're conditioned with those attitudes. Now I'd like to say something about returning Buddhism to its radical edge. In, in, in an interview for Parabola magazine, several, maybe as many as 15 years ago, Mu Soeng, who had practiced as a Korean Zen Buddhist, but was at the time, uh, director of the Insight Meditation Society Centre in Massachusetts said, 
I find that the elements of consumerism and commodification are so powerful in the American culture, and I think the same applies here, that everything gets commodified. Even well-meaning people end up being purveyors of consumer items. That's the power of the culture, and it's inescapable. One thing I see again and again is that Buddhism in America is a middle-class bourgeois movement, and it is the nature of bourgeois middle-class movements that everything be commodified. What the Buddha was trying to tell us is to, th is to throw out all the sorry, throw out, throw all the furniture out of the living room. But what we are trying to do is just move the furniture around. People don't really want to change. We are not willing to throw the furniture out. First of all, the culture will not allow it. And secondly, because if we're throwing it out, there, there is the fear that everything will collapse. But if you throw the furniture out, there is empty space and a relationship with space. That is more open, more spacious. I think Musa Wang has hit the nail on the head. One of the greatest risks, I believe, for Buddhism's survival in the West is the, is the potential for pandering to consumerist attitudes and demands and the demands of those who come knocking at its door, giving them what they want rather than what they need. It seems to me that the Dharma is very strong medicine for a world that, for the most part, doesn't even realise it's sick. Given the pervasive, instant and usually short-term gratifications on offer in Sangsara, the hard-won but ultimately satisfactory alternative offered by the Dharma is unlikely to appeal to the masses. In the 21st century, just as in the Buddha's day, relatively few people have but little dust in their eyes, but there are some. The Buddha's exhortation to renounce attachments to sensual pleasures, to overcome our addiction to them, to tr is truly radical in our rampantly consumerist society. To sincerely and effectively practice the Dharma is, I believe, to peacefully subvert the status quo. I guess we could describe the Dharma as a quiet riot. So what are we to do? First and foremost, we must start with ourselves. We must ask ourselves, honestly, do I want to be enlightened? Or do I simply want to have an easier ride in Sangsara? If we decided we want the former, then consciously commit to going for refuge to the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Place these at the centre of your life and recommit to them regularly. Guard them as you would any jewels, keep them safe and polish them regularly. If we look after the three jewels, they will look after us. The Buddha taught that the middle way between the extremes of self-mortification self and excess. We all need to consume to survive, but we don't need to be mindless consumers. We can, if we are mindful, be in this consumerist world, but not of it. The way to protect ourselves and progress in this endeavour is through the application of the four right efforts, so that our personal consumption becomes more rather than less skillful, and we can encourage others to do likewise. This is achieved by, firstly, preventing the arising of mindless consumption. Guard the gates of the senses. Consciously reduce or limit your exposure to marketing and advertising, and prevent sources of temptation. Don't unconsciously surf the TV channels or internet. Remember, what we pay attention to, we become. 
why not get rid, get rid of your television altogether? Consciously and selectively choose the media you read, watch or listen to. When you go shopping, make a list of what you want in advance and stick to it rather than deciding what you want on the hoof. Secondly, eradicate existing mindless consumption. Consider the motivations behind what you consume and always remember that world actions have consequences. Consider the ethics of what you're purchasing in terms of whether or not it's been fairly traded and what, if any, harm has been done to people, animals or the planet in its production. Thirdly, cultivate and foster stillness, simplicity and contentment through mindful consumption. Declutter your life. Get into the habit of being generous and giving away stuff on a regular basis. Be frugal and recycle as much as possible. Share resources, maybe even live together. Rather than buying stuff, why not grow it or make it? And finally, maintaining mindful and sustainable consumption. Be mindful of what you do have and appreciate it. Express gratitude for whatever comes into your possession. Take nothing for granted. Waste nothing and look after everything in your possession. In Dogen's instructions to the Zen cook, he states that the Tenzin, the cook, is mindful of and does not waste even a single grain of rice. If we are mindful, are mindful of and appreciate everything in this sort of way, we're unlikely to be excessive in our consumption. Now, if you follow these suggestions, you're very much going to be going against the grain of mainstream society. And in all probability, just telling you in all honesty, you're going to be considered an oddball <laughs> by so-called normal people. Sangharakshita makes it clear that going for refuge is not just a question of altering our own mental states by willed effort alone. The context and circumstances in which we live and work directly impact upon our minds. So for the benefit of both ourselves and others who tread the Buddhist path, we need to do what we can to improve our external circumstances. So where are we to start with this? Well, I strongly suggest that we invest heavily in our, in our spiritual friendships in Kalyana Mitrata. We are each other's context. The attitudes and values of the people you associate with will influence your own thinking and attitudes. And secondly, Actively contribute to the creation and maintenance of the Sangha as the most important external condition in which to live your spiritual life. As a member of the Sangha, I am not just concerned with my spiritual life and practice. I have a vested interest in our spiritual practice. Where Sangha is strong, it acts as an inspiring, nurturing and protective shield against the consumerist default position. The default position that mainstream culture and society regards as normal. However, this shouldn't be limited to our immediate environment, but should extend to the wider social, economic and political influences that impinge upon it too. Consequently, we need to do what we can, not, to, not just to transform ourselves, but society too. If we take the doctrine of conditioned co-production seriously, then we will know that we and, our, and the society we live in cannot be separated. So what I'd like to do now is just finish with a prayer, a renunciation prayer, which I wrote a couple of years ago. Um, 
uh, I think it speaks for itself. And then when I finish, we'll have a short break for 10 minutes, um, a comfort break, and then when we return, we'll, we'll do puja. My life is full and busy, earning money, for, earning money, striving for success, status, stimulation, and especially pleasure. Pleasure in whatever ways I can get it. Sex, food, fashions and fads, gadgets and gimmicks. I always want more, bigger, better, different. I am consumed by the need to consume. I acquire all manner of junk, experiences, and even people. What I valued yesterday, I discard today. What I value today, I shall discard tomorrow. I want this, then that, then something else. I am completely enthralled by the froth of samsara. My greed creates suffering for me, for others, for the world. I am an addict, always wanting just one more, chocolate, book, holiday, friend, lover. The list is endless. Restless, anxious and empty, I have an insatiable hunger. Like a black hole, I will devour this planet, this galaxy, this universe. I just don't have enough. I've never had enough. I will never have enough. The treadmill of craving keeps me distracted from what I really need. Faster, faster and faster the wheel turns. Never moving forwards and exhausted, I am racing towards old age, sickness and death. Thank you Shakyamuni. I am grateful to you who discovered and taught the way to freedom, above and between the two extremes. The narrow path, straight as a shuttle from Sangsara to Nirvana, the blissful, peaceful, selfless state. My parents gave the gift of physical life, you the gift of a meaningful life. I bow down and prostrate at your feet. You are truly a kinsman of the sun, a bringer of light dispelling the darkness, a guide showing the way out of this mire. All too soon this precious life is spent. What time I have left I must not waste. Heeding your dharma I shall strive on, awake to every second of every minute of every hour of every remaining day. Opening my clenched fist I shall no longer grab, grasp and cling. Opening my heart I shall hanker after nothing but the truth. <laughs>